0: we were thinking, why is that? Why why do the college years seem like the glory days? And we realized that a lot of it is that in college, you're you're separated out from from a, many of the things that often consume us later on. You get to choose a major, something you care about, and go after that. And not only that, but you get to do that alongside friends who are also in your same position in life and care about the same things, the same ideas. They have the same passions. And then so often, we, it's, it's, we found that Many of our friends lost that as they moved on from their college years. So we decided to set out from college and seek after a compelling vision for life, a vision that would last us, uh, not only for the first few years after we graduated, but for our entire lives. And so the prospect began to come up of a journey around the globe. We decided that we were going to try to find Christians all over the globe who are living what we call the epic life, a life to the full. And we were going to find from them... What made them live differently from the society around them? How did they become motivated to, to live in such a way? And what principles did they live by that made their lives so extraordinary? So I'll give you a few details of, of, that, uh, of that journey. We, uh, we departed from Westmont, and we traveled first to Guatemala. Many of you know Solomon and Mary Hernandez, who have spoken here in chapel a number of times. Uh, we delivered a, a pickup truck to the Hernandezes before and spent about a month down there with them. Before traveling on to uh, Russia, we stayed in in Russia for about uh, one and a half months, then went to Cairo, Egypt, and then from Cairo to uh, South Africa and Lesotho, Africa. And then from the kingdom of Lesotho, we traveled to uh, Bombay, India, and then uh, Hyderabad, Calcutta, up into Nepal, across to Dhaka, Bangladesh, uh, to Bangkok, Thailand, where we purchased 160 Vietnamese language Bibles, smuggled those into, into Saigon, Vietnam, spent some time there with the underground church before continuing on to China, and then coming home. All total, the trip was about uh, 210 days, and the trip was was very exciting, uh, no doubt about it. There were all kinds of of experiences and and uh, you know you know the sort of things that happen when you go on a crazy adventure, uh, but. But if that had been all that there was, if it was just this adventure, then we would have just come back to life and it just would have been get right back into the normal, uh, the normal steps of, of society and, and that would have been it. But we felt like we had found the keys to, those ep- to that epic life. And in a way, it had been right in front of us all along. But we saw it in the lives of the people we spent time with in all of these other countries. And we're going to go over some of the principles for that epic life.
1: As Trey mentioned, there was an extremely disappointing aspect to our journey. Because while we had set out to find this purposeful, meaningful life to the full, what we called epic life, it was not found in those adventures, those grand adventures that we were going on. It wasn't that hiking in the Himalayas and seeing the pyramids and going to the Indian jungles and all of those things was not exciting, but there was simply the reality that no matter how many times you press the adrenaline button, it tends to wear off, and you're left back in the middle of an ordinary day, even in very extraordinary places. And had that been all we took home, as Trey mentioned, it would have been extremely disappointing but we found something more, and it began to trickle in in these ordinary moments that we were spending with what would be considered very ordinary people in such a way that, that we almost didn't recognize it when we saw it because in, in their far-off lands, in their world, it was just ordinary life. It was their day-to-day routines and things they did on a daily basis. And yet we began to see that in the midst of those ordinary lives, There was a meaning and a purpose and a passion that we hungered after. And we began to see it in these lives in very concrete ways. Let me give you some pictures of this. Brother Huang in Vietnam, a thickly built man, much much uh, broader shoulder than many of his countrymen, but that same uh, intense look in his eye and, and, and a very gentleness about his spirit. And we got to spend time with him and he told us his story. He had been uh, born near the border of Cambodia and Vietnam. And during the war between those two countries, had ended up in a, uh, a camp, a refugee camp. He just committed his life to Christ while he was there. And after the war, he returned to his village and began to share Christ with his countrymen. And after a period of time, a number of people in his village gave their lives to Christ as well. The Vietnamese government is strictly atheist, and so they... They brought him into the prison and began to question him and said, "Huang, if you're going to ever get out of here, you're going to have to give us the names of every single person that gave their lives to Christ in your village. And he refused. So they locked him up. They locked him up with with another man, two other men actually, and within about two weeks he had led those men to Christ as well. So they moved him to another cell and this man was a government informant. He was there to pump Huang for information. But when it became clear that Huang was not gonna be giving any of that information, they moved him into solitary confinement. A little cell about three feet by three feet, always pitch black except in the morning and at night when they'd slide open a little slat and bring in a a small bowl of rice. And he lived that way for month after month after month. And occasionally they would bring him out and, and give him the opportunity for freedom if he would turn over those names and renounce his faith. But he refused again and again because he was utterly convinced that what God had for him and God's purposes were ultimately better than anything he would gain if he was released. And he knew that his friends were out there getting educations, beginning careers and beginning to learn, getting married and growing and developing, while he sat in that darkness and he felt like his mind was turning to mush. One day his jailer came into his cell and said, "Huang." You're more innocent than anyone in your generation. Go. To this day, Huang lives in that village, continuing to serve his countrymen and share Christ. And we began to see in his life and in many others that this life to the full that we hungered after requires, in its essence often, cutting against the very fabric and grain of the assumptions of everyone else around you. In particular, the definition of what success is that everyone else assumes is the case. And Huang was able to cut against that because he was utterly convinced that what God had for him was ultimately better than what the world had to offer. Another picture of this, Solomon and Mary Hernandez. You've heard of them. They've spoken in chapel. We got to spend six weeks with them in Guatemala. Solomon and Mary are Ladinos, which is the upper class of Guatemala's... People and of more European blood. The other group is the Mayan people, which is uh, an underclass, severe underclass. The, the gap between those two groups is probably as wide as anything in the South a 100 years ago. And no one in Ladino culture would consider doing the things that Solomon was doing. But he felt as a pastor of a small church, that he should bring in the Mayans that they should have one church together following after Christ together. So he began to learn the language of the poor, K'iche', the language of the Mayans, something no one else would bother to do. It would be a total waste of time, no economic benefit at all. But as he did this, the Mayans began to join his church, and the people in his church objected to that. And of course, that seems extremely ignorant to us. But if you can imagine people coming into your church who not only spoke a different language, but who were very diseased, who had lice, and if your children played with them, would likely get sick. It's a bit easier to understand, perhaps. And so they said, Solomon, we don't want these people in our church. And if you want them, then why don't we build two churches, and they can go to the other one, and we'll worship in this one. And Solomon said, no. If we're going to be following after Christ, we're going to do this together. And ultimately, his church gave him a choice between serving the Mayans and serving them. They said, if you want to be pastor of this church, you're going to have to let go of this Mayan thing. So ultimately, Solomon left the church. He was stripped of his position, stripped of his title of pastorship. But once again, Solomon, like Huang, was cutting against the grain of the assumptions of his culture because he was utterly convinced that Christ's vision was ultimately better than anything the world around him could offer. And it's going to look different in any culture that you're in. In Russia, it was standing up against the atheistic nation, the communist state. And many of those people that we got to spend time with suffer terribly for that. In South Africa, the people there, it was standing against apartheid. In India, it was serving the untouchables, that class of people that people consider like garbage. And spending many believers there, including uh, Mother Teresa, we got to serve some with shortly, had given their lives to serving these people in the name of Christ. And so while it looks differently in every culture, that essential character of being willing to rebel against everything that everyone else is assuming has to be for success seems to be shared by those who seek after this epic life that we were hungering for. And we desired that with all our hearts. We wanted to seek after it, and we realized that although these people are really did struggle, and there was really concrete physical difficulties in their lives. They had a sense of purpose and of passion and of meaning and of substance that was this epic life that we wanted. And so we purposed in our hearts to to seek after this, this as well. But there was one element that still remained, a piece of the puzzle that began to fall in over time because society and the assumptions of people around you are so powerful that if you purpose to to go against that grain you will likely be melted down like a candle in a furnace if you are trying to do it by yourself. And the remedy that God has provided for that is is a concept that's very familiar to us all. The idea of church. But to us in America that concept has has come to, in many ways, mean nothing more than gathering together on Sunday mornings, maybe Wednesday nights, maybe a mix or some other evening, but little more than that. And what we saw in these people around the world who were living this purposeful life that we sought was that their concept of church was so much more bound together than we had conceived of prior to being with them. The church in northern Russia, we remember so so well, that, that getting to interact with them and, and see their lives. they had Many of them had been shipped up there into the Siberia region because they were followers of Christ. And Stalin shipped them up there, and other Russian leaders shipped them up there. And they were living in this Christian... They had their own lives, but they had this church. And, and the church was not simply, like I mentioned, just gathering together at certain periods for service. Their lives were intermingled in a hundred ways. If someone's car was broken there was someone in the church who would come and fix it. If someone was ill, there was someone that would come over and help them care for their things and and do do everything they needed to do until they recovered. While we were there, someone's mother died, and there were several people at the church that stayed at the home of the the daughter for, for as long as we were there, probably are still taken care of, right? We don't know. But the reality was that their lives were tied together in a thousand wonderful strands of service and interaction. And the the word we might use for this, a little closer in English, is the word fellowship. But even that for us often just means hanging out together and getting coffee occasionally and things like that. The original Greek word of fellowship, koinonia, carries much stronger tones of actual sacrifice in the service of others, in sharing. Sharing not only experiences and happy moments, but very concrete resources including financial resources, and we saw this in the church in Russia. When we came, they brought us into that circle because they felt with all their hearts that we were truly part of that family. When we arrived there in in the far north, in the Komi region, western Siberia, uh, we had been planning to stay in a kind of an orphanage. They had some extra space, but just before we arrived, uh, some, some more kids had come in, and so there was no place for us to stay. Well, the pastor of this church he had, had a small, really a one-room home. Half of it was bedroom, half of it was kind of living room kitchen. They brought the four of us, as well as a, a, tra- a translator that was traveling with us and another man, to come stay with them in that one-room house for three weeks. That goes far beyond our notion of what sharing and hospitality could possibly mean, and But it was incredible to experience the richness of that life together. And just like it takes remarkable sacrifices to live totally with abandon for Christ and his priorities, this this community itself takes real sacrifices, the financial sacrifices, the time sacrifices that it takes to be a part of a community like this. And we experienced this ourselves between the four of us as we were traveling, because when you're together that intensely, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, working together, eating together, sleeping together, the little grains of selfishness that most of you might not notice about me if if we were just say working together, you know, 40-50 hours a week, when you're together that intensely, the little littlest grains of selfishness become like a piece of sand in your swim trunks when you're on a long hike. And it just begins to rub and and ultimately you've got to deal with it. And so we had to commit to each other. To every night, we had a time of reconciliation and confession. Every single night, we would talk through any issues we had with each other, any things that we were struggling with with each other. And and there were times, honestly, where we started eight at eight in the evening and go till two in the morning. You know, just banging heads. But as difficult as that was, it was in many ways one of the richest aspects of the journey, because those small things that that, you know, hide down deep and just are lodged there, come up. And and maybe if I have a, a conflict with Mike here, and Mike and I are in conflict, and, I, you know, Mike says to me, you know, Jed, I think you're being selfish here. And I said, no, Mike, you're the one that's being selfish. Well, you know, depending on who's the better arguer, it's going to, you know, maybe just go out that way, not really who's the one being selfish. But if there's two neutral observers here, and they both say, no, Jed, you're the one that's being selfish, you know, what what can you do? <laughs> There were honestly times where I just felt like saying, screw you all, you know. <laughs> the problem is you're waking up and the guy's right next to you, you know. And you better deal with it or you're going to have to leave. And, and there was actually a guy before the trip that predicted one of you is going to leave before you make it through these seven months. But thank the Lord, through this reconciliation and, and through our growing together, instead of us splitting apart, it was just a refining process. And that's always going to be the case when you're dwelling closely together in Christian community. Ultimately, though, it comes down to a decision. If you are serious about following these things, if you're serious about setting Christ's standards of success and what real life is above the definitions of success that's all around you, and if you're going to plunge yourself into this community and make the time and financial sacrifices that it takes to live in this community, you ultimately have to be convinced that what God will have for you in that is better than what the world can offer. And if you're not convinced of that, when it comes to the difficult times and the sacrifices, possibly even physical harm, like it has for many of these people we spent time with, then you're not going to be able to go through with it. So you might as well not even start. That's what Jesus said. That's what he was talking about when he said, count the cost. And by count the cost, he didn't mean understand how miserable you're going to be if you follow me and then come do it anyway. He was saying, just understand what you're getting into. Understand that if you decide to follow me, there are going to be real challenges and real difficulties. But ultimately, I have come that you have, that you might have abundant life. You just have to know what you're getting into. But the rewards, as we saw in every one of these lives around the world, is far more... anything that you can ever find if you have set yourself primarily towards having great vacations, having lots of entertainment and distraction in your life, and I'm ultimately hoping that you're going to end up on a golf course someday when you retire. Now here's the exciting thing. As Matt mentioned, 2,700 years ago, King Solomon came to the end of his life And he looked back at all the things that most of us would consider extreme success, possessions and power, accomplishment, education, pleasures. And he said, meaningless, meaningless. It is all meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And he only realized that at the end of his life, that those pursuits were empty and that the only thing that mattered was dwelling in a relationship and a purposeful life in Christ. You and us are at a place in our lives where we still have the best of our energies and days ahead of us. And so we are given the freedom to choose that life now so that we don't come to the end and look back and say, meaningless. So that we can build substance and purpose and passion, all these things we've been talking about, a truly epic life. And look back on that from the very last of our days. May we settle for nothing less.
2: The, the four of us have uh, stopped everything that we've been doing in our lives, quit our jobs, and uh, right now we're in the actually at the very beginnings of going throughout the country and t- to speaking to groups like you. And we really feel passionate about this vision that God has given us for this life that has promi- promised us in the Bible and that oftentimes we don't see it any more in the church than we do outside of the church. And we'd really like to just uh, take some questions from you guys right now. And I know it's a big group and sometimes it's a little nerve-wracking to you think you're going to sound foolish or something, but we, we really would like to hear from you and just some of your thoughts on what we've had to say today. The question was, how did we raise the money? Um, it's kind of interesting that question comes to me because I, I hate asking people for money, and I was very adamant about that, and, uh, which meant that basically I didn't raise my fair share of the money. So. But it was really just boiled down to trusting the Lord that this is what he'd had for us, and there was a lot of people who came beside us in that vision. Uh, we did send out some support letters. We did raise uh, a lot of the money ourselves. And, uh, actually when we left on the trip, we only had about half the amount of money that we needed, and so we were a little worried we were going to wind up in Egypt for the rest of our lives, and that was kind (laughs) of, but, uh, the Lord did really come through, and that money came in. We still don't know exactly where from, but it was in our account when we, next time we checked. So, and just to let you guys know, there are some side mics set up on both aisles, so if you do have a question, just so that everybody can hear, that would be great.
0: I had amazing adventures, and I was wondering if
2: you have any stories of when your life was in extreme danger. <laughs> it, it's it's hard to know sometimes when you're in another country if your life's in extreme danger or not. You <laughs> you usually gauge it by the looks on the faces of the people around you, because you usually don't know what they're saying. So, um, I'll just give you an example of, of one time. I, I don't think we... It's hard to know what kind of danger we were in, but it was definitely a perceived danger. We were in Mexico. Jed and I took a truck down to, like we said, to Guatemala. And because of a hurricane, we had to take a uh, what we thought was a, a nice detour, which turned out to be a little more interesting than that. But we took a shortcut, which I don't advise if you're in another country. And uh, we've been traveling through just very rural Mexico. I mean, there's just huts, mud huts, and cornfields, and we hadn't seen anything modern for hours. And all of a sudden we come around a corner and there's two brand new black Suburbans with about eight guys with machine guns just standing there in front of the road. And they had shirts that said Federalis on it, but they were just like T-shirts that looked like anybody could print them. So (laughs) we were definitely very skeptical. And we debated on, you know, should we just throw it in reverse and try to get out of here? But we figured, you know, if they were federales, or even if they weren't, they probably would shoot us before we could. So we stopped, and they were very curious as to why we'd be on these back roads, and uh, they searched our whole car underneath for about 20 minutes, and finally they pulled out of the back a package. It was a brown bag wrapped in tape several times, and it looked like the classic kilo of cocaine out of a Miami Vice show. I mean, And they're like, hey, what is this? What is this? And we were freaked out. We thought, oh, man, we're spending the rest of our lives in a Mexican jail, and that's all there is to it. And then they showed us the box where it came from. We kept denying, no, this isn't ours. This isn't ours. And they showed us this box, and it had several more of those packages in it. And then we were really getting worried. And the guy slid a knife into the bag, and all these greenish-colored seeds started spilling out. And a little bit after that, Jed, we started digging through the box, You know, just praying, Lord, you know, deliver us from this. And uh, Jed found some peanut butter and some uh, Hanes underwear and some other stuff and realized this was a care package his aunt was having us take down to his cousin in Guatemala. And these were some seeds. He was doing work with the farmers down there, and they were just like corn, or not corn, but different types of seeds. So, And there were several experiences like that that we didn't know if we were in danger. Other times, we didn't think we were in danger, and a day or two later, the locals would... We recount a story, and they just look at us like, you guys obviously don't know what you're doing.
0: (laughs) I'm wondering um, what kind of churches you go to now, if you found anything with the kind of community you found overseas.
1: Um, And maybe, if not, how you've dealt with the dissatisfaction of the American church. (laughs) right now i go to a covenant church and i'm living in chicago now going to seminary and to answer your question indirectly community is often what you make it and it's not necessarily this is a good church and it has wonderful community it's you have to take the initiative yourself and make community yourself start with yourself make time for people Make it your intention to spend time with people and make decisions based off of relationships rather than success. And no matter how bad the church seems, there's community available there. You have to seek it out, though, and it takes some intentionality and some effort. Am I on that? <laughs> okay. Um, there's also an element in which we have sought to live out this community and the relationships between the four of us. And though for the last several years we've been living in different geographic locations, we've been struggling to see what does that look like now that we're back in our ordinary lives and, and now that we're married, that's it brings on obviously a whole new dynamic. And so there's been a real sense in which at times and to the extent to which we have been deeply uh, re- re- um, connected with each other, continuing in that accountability, continuing uh, to... to build our relationship and spur each other on, there's some some real good things happening there. But there's a real sense of of disappointment, too, at the same time. When you're not geographically together, that's a key element to this fellowship that we're talking about. And so, really, as we look beyond our our time of speaking, we're trying to sort through, okay, what is it going to look like? I mean, we, we feel like it would probably have to be a geographic closeness for us to live out community together and then begin to bond with other people around us. So it's, it's something that we're wrestling with as well, you know, seeking how can we live this out.
2: Well, I think uh, Chapel Time's about over now, so uh, we'd really love to talk to you guys further. We'll be out in the foyer afterwards. Um, and we also, for those of you who are just interested in a an adventure book. We have uh, the book that we've recently rented where we we delve into a lot of these issues but also just chronicle our our adventure that we had. And we're really passionate about the ideas that it contains, so we hope that uh, you guys will dig deeper into it. And if you have uh, non-Christian friends who are always kind of criticizing this boring Christian life, uh, we think it might be something they might be interested in also. But I'd like to just close us in prayer. Lord, just thank you for the the blessings you bestow upon us, Lord, and the community you've given us here at Westmont, and what a blessing that is. Lord, help us to remember that, that when we've given up everything, we've taken everything to sell for that pearl of great price, to enjoy that pearl that we've purchased, Lord, to enjoy the relationship with others that we have through you, and just how bountiful of a life that it can be. I pray that we remember that we don't need to be in some foreign country to be doing this, Lord. But if we take advantage of the interruptions in our day, those little things where we have the opportunity to minister to each other's needs that often seem to, to take away from the things we're striving to accomplish, if we can focus on serving others and glorifying you, just what a rich life that will give us. I pray that as all of us go out from here today that we'll remember that and it'll be something that has an impact on our lives and the decisions we make. Just thank you so much for your son and for the blessing we have in you. In your name, amen.
1: amen.